So you're going to Bible, let's go ahead and dig into our Bibles. Uh, I'll scrap my transition from the video into my sermon and go straight into the teaching. If you, have, if you need a Bible, we'd love to get a Bible in your hand. If the people walking around, just slip up a, a hand and we will get a Bible to you. But today is, uh, we are bringing to cl- the close our study in the Gospel of Mark. So you can go on and turn to Mark chapter 14 is where we'll start, but we will end uh, with these final, the final moments that Mark shares of Jesus' life. So you know uh, that next week we'll actually be starting into our summer series, and, uh, and one thing that we do that's pretty unique and as the video is showing, is that Grace Monroe is a part of the Grace family of churches. That there's 10 Grace churches, most of them in the Georgia, Atlanta area, but also out in Missouri and Washington, D.C. But during the summer, all of us uh, teach the same series. And uh, we'll be going through the Minor Prophets. So if you've ever been fascinated by Obadiah and Nahum, get, buckle up, get ready to dive in. Uh, and uh, what we do is we share pulpits with each other. So I'll be going to some other Grace Churches. Some of their teaching pastors will come and be here in Monroe over the course of the summer just so we can hear from one another and celebrate stories across the family. And I can go and celebrate what God has done here in Monroe at other Grace Churches. So it's a really fun time together. But today we're going to bring to a close in the Gospel of Mark. And and I felt like it was really appropriate that it's Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday that we, we uh, mark that 50 days after Easter when Jesus, having told, resurrected Jesus, told his disciples, wait for me. Go to Jerusalem and wait for me, and I will give you my spirit, and I will empower you to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so those early followers of Jesus, men and women, gathered together in that upper room singing and praying and expectantly waiting for God to show up. And sure enough, on that Pentecost Sunday, we find this in Acts 2, the Spirit gets poured out like tongues of fire coming to rest on every individual head. And that wind of the Spirit blows into the room. It sends them out into the street. I love that when the Spirit of God shows up, one of the first things it does is it fills and it sends. And that is our hope, even as we gather on Sunday, as we allow the Word of God to shape our lives, as we are refilled by that Spirit that God will be sending us out into the rest of our week. And when they go out in the streets, it says that they are speaking in every tongue, every language that was in in Jerusalem at the time, that it was the festival of Pentecost, and people had gathered from all over the world. And so this group of good old boy Galileans were speaking in languages they had no business knowing. And what they were proclaiming was the gospel, the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That by his, by the cross, that we are forgiven of our sins, restored into relationship with God, and filled by his spirit. Peter, hearing the crowd begin to murmur at the noise that all of this uh, craziness was creating. Look at them. They must be drunk. Peter stands up and he goes, no, no, no. We're not drunk as you think we are. In fact, it's only 9 a.m. But instead, just as the prophet declared, the Spirit has come, pouring himself out. The young men will see visions. The old men will dream dreams On young and old, male and female, I will pour out my spirit. 
that Jesus Christ, the one that you crucified, who had, who had uh, shown himself to be of God by signs and miracles that you can attest to yourselves, that you put to death on the cross, we are here to declare that he is risen. And so that was the message of Pentecost that birthed the church. And here we are 2,000 years later in Monroe, Georgia, remembering those same things. But it comes back to these final moments in Mark. And so today I want to move fairly quickly, but to look at and ask this question, what was Jesus doing on the cross? What was Jesus doing on the cross? And so we'll look, start here in Mark 14 where we ended last week. Jesus, having shared that last supper, that Passover meal with his disciples, heads out into the night, goes across the valley and up into the Garden of Gethsemane on that hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem among the olive trees and kneels down there to pray, begging God to take this cup from him. If there's any other way for your plan to happen, God, may it be, but not my will, Jesus prays, but your will be done. Three times he prays that, humbling himself and accepting the task before him. And immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. All of the authorities gathered together against Jesus. I think it's powerful that Mark chooses to note that Judas, his betrayer, was one of the twelve. This is Mark is saying he was one of them. Jesus betrayed by one of his own. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, teacher, and he kissed him. If you travel to the Middle East or really a lot of parts of the world, it's a very normal and natural to greet one another with a kiss, that, that side kiss of affection, of affirmation. We are, I'm one with you. I'm welcoming you. And it was with that kiss that Judas, one of Jesus' own, betrayed him to death. Giving the sign that this is the one they were to arrest, it says that they seize Jesus some chose to fight back in that moment, and Jesus puts a stop to the violence because he knows that the path forward is not one of violence, but one of death. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But may the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus God in the flesh, the visible representation of an invisible God that at a moment could have called a legion of angels from heaven to stop the whole thing, submitted himself and let himself be led away. And in that moment, it says, and they all left him and fled. So what was God doing through Jesus on the cross? Well, 14, one of the first things we see is that Jesus was identifying with humanity. That Jesus endured every pain that is common to mankind. 
and even in these final hours, that he took on himself the pain of humanity. He endured everything for our sake. We see that he was betrayed. He was lied to. He was abandoned. And so they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together again, all the authorities. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. So we see Peter still following. Notice that that was one of the first words that Jesus spoke to Peter. Follow me. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. It says Peter left everything and followed Jesus. We watched for three years. Peter, follow Jesus. Peter pledged his life, even pledged his death to Jesus. But in this moment, we see Peter begin to distance himself a little bit from Jesus. We know where the rest of the story goes. Jesus had already told Peter what was about to happen. I wonder how many times in our life Jesus is called to follow, to be with the pledges that we've made and with all the zeal that we can muster up. We'll never leave you, Jesus. I'm all in. How many times we've been through seasons that we begin to distance ourselves from our Lord. They lead him into the house of the high priest and many, it says, verse 56, bore false witness against him but their testimony didn't agree. Jesus betrayed, lied to, abandoned, and lied about. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Yet he remained silent and he made no answer. In the face of their accusation, he didn't try to defend himself. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And here Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest at this tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. They're accusing him of lying about God. And what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Jesus endured every pain common to humanity, betrayed, lied to, abandoned, lied about, abused, shamed, despised, mocked, slandered, beaten, and disowned. That even in this moment of pain, the one closest to him denies him says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor even understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. I think it's interesting, I circled my Bible, uh, there Mark includes that phrase, that he was warming himself. And the question that came to mind as I read that and I was thinking about Peter, with all that Jesus was enduring inside the house, and there Peter in his fear and in his, his insecurity and in, in his grief and in his panic, 
that he's warming himself by the fire. And it just the question that came to mind is, how many times in crisis am I more concerned about my own comfort than the people around me? I wonder if Peter's betrayal didn't just begin when he actually answered the servant girl in a negative, but began maybe when he began to distance himself from Jesus and he began to be concerned more with what was going on in him than what was going on with Jesus. And I wonder how many of us find ourselves in that same place. On the cross, Jesus was identifying with our pain. We know that wounded people wound people. Amen? I mean, you know that in your own life, don't you? Like You know the way that other people's wounds have spilled out on you. I also know the way that my wounds have spilled out and hurt the people around me. My insecurities, my hiding, my own places of regret, frustration, inadequacy. Wounded people wound people. But Jesus died that our wounds might be healed. That Jesus took to the cross all of the pain of mankind. He knows your pain. Not just that he knows it like God who sees everything. Well, of course he knows it. He's watched it happen. He doesn't just know it like somebody that has observed your pain. He knows it because he's experienced it. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be lied to and lied about. And so whatever pain you carry, Jesus knows your pain. He has walked in your pain so that he can walk with you in yours. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he took on our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Wounded people wound people. Jesus died that our wounds may be healed, and that through him healed people can help heal people. servant girl sees Peter again saying to the people around him, this man is one of them. Actually, in the Greek, there's only three words there. Literally, it is, this is of them. A statement of intimate identification, and it's at this. Peter says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The other account tells with a curse he called down on himself separates himself from Jesus, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had already told him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. But Jesus didn't just go to the cross to identify with our pain.
Jesus also went to the cross to take our place. That it's not just identification, but there's substitution. That he took our pain to the cross, but he also took our sin. In Mark 15, the scene shifts and it moves from the religious leaders' council to the political leaders. As they lead Jesus to stand in front of Pilate, the governor. And as, it was, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you, in fact, the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Listen how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And so Pilate answered them, saying, So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, being Jesus? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, So what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, which is violently whipped, Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Mark is a man of few words. Every word, every sentence, every phrase he uses matters, it counts. And in these final verses of his gospel account, he uses that word crucify eight different times. It's one of the most frequently used words in his gospel, and it is all right here. Crucify, crucify, crucify. As if everything that he has written about and shared about Jesus is all pointing to this moment, to the cross. Another character is introduced into the story, this man Barabbas. What we know about Barabbas is that he was an insurrectionist. In other words, he led violent revolts against Rome. And in those violent revolts, he was known to have killed people. He was a murderer, a criminal. He deserved to die. He deserved whatever punishment faced him. He was rightfully imprisoned. And yet there was a tradition in that feast in the, at the Pentecost festival that Pilate would, to appease the crowds, he would give them one of, his own, of their own back from his political dungeon. So they began to ask for him to do the same thing, and assuming that maybe they would release Jesus, because Pilate knows that he sees nothing that Jesus has done wrong. In fact, he's also been warned by his wife, which whenever your wife warns you about something, you should probably listen to her. Pilate actually knows there's something about this Jesus. He's amazed by him, marvels at him, doesn't get it. He's confused. He senses, he's a smart man. He senses the envy of the other leaders. And so he's trying to release Jesus back to them. But they say, no, 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 no. We don't want Jesus, the one who actually actually done anything, that we had to lie about to find some charge. 
No, we want the one that we know is a criminal, that has killed people, that has revolted violently. And I just imagine Barabbas sitting in his cell as all of this was happening. And Barabbas knowing that he deserves to die, knowing what he's done, knowing what faces him, that there's no way out of it. He knows the next time he walks out of that dungeon, it's going to be to a cross. And maybe as he's down there in that dungeon, he hears the noise of the crowd gathered outside. And and I imagine maybe he can't even hear what Pilate is saying to the crowd, but surely he would have heard the roar of the crowd. Matthew, when he's sharing this, Barabbas is actually mentioned in every one of the gospel accounts. He's significant to the story. God wants us to get Barabbas. And Matthew says that Pilate asks, who do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd yells, Barabbas. Then what do you want me to do with this Jesus, the king of the Jews? Crucify him. Imagine Barabbas sitting in his dungeon knowing he's condemned to die. All of a sudden hears a roar from the crowd yelling his name, Barabbas. And then this pause. And then the crowd roars again, crucify him. Barabbas, crucify him. And all of a sudden he hears the guards begin to make their way down the hallway and he knows what he's about to face. And they fling open the door and they grab him. And he's sure that he's about to walk back down that hallway and his time is now. He's about to die. But instead what they do is they unlock his chains and they throw him out of the prison and they set him free. And so that the one who actually deserves to die gets set free. And the only one who has ever truly deserved to live gets sent to die. I think Barabbas matters so much because we all are Barabbas. And our sin and our brokenness and our guilt, we know the shame that we carry, the things that we've done, the things that we haven't done. And thought and action and inaction, the ways that we've wounded and rejected and rebelled against the God who knows us and made us and loves us, I know my sin. And I just imagine myself as Barabbas sitting in that prison cell. And, and there's so many times that even as, as that door is flung open and set free, my reaction is I just kind of want to sit in my shame still. Because I know my guilt. I know what I deserve. And even as Jesus throws open the prison doors and says, no, you're free. I'm taking your sin on myself. I'm going to the cross so that you don't have to. In my heart, I'm still sitting there locked in my unchained chains and saying, no, 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 but I know what I deserve, God. I'm going to wallow in my guilt. I'm going to sit in my brokenness. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've set you free. I've taken your place. I went to the cross not just to deal with your pain, but I went to the cross to deal with your sin." Step out. You are forgiven. The other reaction I think about as I place myself into that seat with Barabbas is wondering how many times 
like Barabbas, where I know what I deserve. And yet the thought being, yeah, but if I could just somehow earn my freedom. From this point forward, I was just good enough. Then maybe Pilate would go, well done, man. You've done enough good acts. You're, You're good to go. But it's too late. The penalty is set. I'm already condemned. There's nothing that I can do, and there's no way in my own brokenness, my own insurrection and violence and hurt, that I can even accumulate enough good to overcome the bad that I've done. But even if I could, the bad is still there. There's not perfection. I'm already broken. I need a perfect God to send a perfect sacrifice to take my imperfection that I could be set free. And it'd be enough, it'd be more than enough, that at the cross, what Jesus was doing was to identify with the pain of humanity so that we might be healed, to take on himself the sin of humanity so that we might be forgiven, but at the cross, he also reconciles humanity back to God so that we could be reunited, restored into relationship with our Creator. As they set Barabbas free and said that they take Jesus, deliver him to be crucified, the soldiers leading him away inside the palace, which was the governor's headquarters. And they called together the entire battalion And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him out of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. He's been mocked as a prophet. Now he's being mocked as a king. Everything that Jesus embodied and stood for is thrown at his feet as a joke. They lead him away to be crucified. Continue on, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him and there was the inscription of the charge leveled against him that read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, just executed as a common criminal. Not even anything special. Just another cross on the road. Another death. Another joke. Those passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So the chief priests and the scribes also mocked him to each other, saying, He saved others, yet he can't even save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. Then we would see and believe. As if Jesus, who could command angels, if he was to come down from the cross that moment, that would stir up faith instead that Jesus stays on the cross. He gives up everything and invites us to believe. 
The sixth hour has come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, up to this point, Jesus, whenever he talked about God, talked about his father, Abba, this intimate relationship between a son and his dad. And yet here on the cross, as darkness has descended on the land, carrying the pain of humanity, bearing the weight of the sin of humanity, he cries out to what feels like a distant God in heaven. Some of the bystanders heard it saying, Behold, he's calling Elijah, that prophet that was to represent the return of God's kingdom. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom from heaven to earth. The curtain that divided the courtyard where the people could gather with the most holy place where the presence of God dwelled. The curtain that separated the people from the presence. The curtain that represented that impossible, impassable wall because of the sin of mankind. To be with a holy God that would kill us in a moment if we were to go in our unholy state. That curtain that for generations had represented God so close and yet so far. The God who had not given up on his people and yet could not fully be reconciled to his people. The God that was longing for the whole world and yet separated from the whole world because of their rebellion and hostility. And in that moment that Jesus breathes his last, that on the cross, that he identifies with our pain, and yes, on the cross, that he takes our sin, but on the cross, in that moment, his death reconciled, brought us back into relationship with the God that we've been separated from. And that curtain that represented that division, it's as if God took it from heaven and ripped it in two, that no longer there would be any separation between God and his people, that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nothing in heaven or on earth. And in that moment, the centurion who represented the power of Rome stood facing Jesus and saw the way that he breathed his last. And he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You see, if Jesus, if the story ended here, we would not be telling that story today. Jesus would just have been another criminal that died like thousands upon thousands of other criminals along the roads of Jerusalem leading to Rome. Just another failed political revolution. Just another flawed religious zealot or so-called prophet. Just another brilliant teacher with meaningless words to say. But on the cross, 
God identifies with our pain. He substitutes himself for the forgiveness of our sins. He reconciles us back into relationship with himself. And on that cross is the ultimate victory of God over sin and death. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him being Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That death is not the end of the story. That sin no longer has the final word. And what we find is Jesus dies on the cross and they take his body down and lay it in an empty tomb. That three days later, the women who had followed Jesus, who had watched him die, made their way that Sunday morning to that tomb, assuming they were going to finish anointing a dead body. They would pour oil and good-smelling spices over dead bodies in tombs, assuming they'd probably have to use that tomb for another dead body and wanted to minimize the smell of death. But when they went into that chamber of death and they approached that grave, expecting to find Jesus' abused and broken body. Instead, what they find is a stone rolled away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. It's actually the last use of the word crucify. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Expecting to find death, they instead found life. And a messenger of God waiting for them with hope and a promise that Jesus is waiting for you. And not just a promise, but a message of grace. I love that the angel included those two powerful words. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Because remember, we just left Peter broken and fleeing in tears into the night. Peter, we don't even know if he's joined back up with the disciples or if he's just off alone. And Jesus wants to make sure that Peter knows it's you that I'm calling. It's you that I want. And I just wonder if even in that phrase, echoing 2,000 years later, if it's the same invitation that Jesus extends to us on this Pentecost morning and our brokenness and our failures and our shame and our guilt go and tell the disciples and John and Addie and Randy and Wes and Rob and Jill and 
Tammy, go and tell the disciples, each one, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. And you will see me, just as I told you. Now there's some mystery around the end of Mark. If your Bible, you probably know that there's a, a line or an asterisk that says that, that the earliest manuscripts don't include the remainder of chapter 16, and, uh, which is true. The, the earliest manuscripts we have, and so there's some questions around that. One is, is there another ending that got lost along the way somewhere uh, that Mark had actually written? Or does Mark just end abruptly right there? And a scribe later added these final parts. Regardless of how you answer that question, uh, uh, the end of Mark that we have in 16 was canonized into Scripture. It is the authoritative word of God. It lines up. 90% of it is attested in other places in Scripture with what gets written in the remaining chapters of Mark. of This appearance of Jesus to his disciples. This command to go and preach the good news to the whole world. That you will be victorious over the forces of evil. But I just wonder if maybe Mark ended there. With this kind of cliffhanger, awkward moment. This sort of just dead-end, rough pause. Because remember how Mark begins his whole gospel. Verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the story. This isn't the end of the story. We're not closing it with a nice tight bow and and this is everything, all the questions have been answered and and it finally comes to a satisfying conclusion and the the hero rides off into the sunset. But if March has ended abruptly and that leaves us begging this question, and then what? What happens next? And if I wonder if maybe, as we stand here 2,000 years later, if you and I are the end of Mark chapter 16, as if Jesus leaves the question answering, what are you going to do with this empty tomb? What are you going to do with this invitation that Jesus is waiting for you. That Jesus is calling you by name. That Jesus is advancing this whole, for, this whole thing forward. That this is just the beginning of the story. It's a story yet to be written. And it's a story to find yourself in. The whole point of Pentecost is that the story didn't end here. Not even much less at the cross. Not even at the resurrection. That the Spirit gets poured out on everyone, men and women, on young and old. And that the story continues to advance. You are the end of Mark chapter 16. You're the one meant to take this message and this invitation. To move this thing forward. To see this kingdom announced. This gospel proclaimed. It's not just a Sunday morning story. It's a Monday morning and a Tuesday morning and a Thursday afternoon and a Friday evening story. 
the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that comes from a God who knows your pain, the God who forgives your sin, a God who reconciles you back to himself, the gift of this Holy Spirit, the actual presence of a holy God dwelling in you, the counselor, the advocate, who goes with you every step of the way. You are the end of Mark 16. This is just the beginning of the story. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? What would that mean if that's true? The very presence of God available for you. What's the story he's writing through your life? Are we able to, will you go back to the point at which, um, I forget her name, Julie, whatever, that sweet little girl, uh, the end of her story. So we leave with three stories. A high school junior who's learning what it means to follow Jesus, to take Jesus, her anxiety and her fear, to hear him meet, have him meet her in his scripture and his word, and then to begin to use her to disciple other middle schoolers. And a couple more stories of John, who just considered himself a businessman, until he realized, wait, maybe this is the mission God has called me to. And then Olu, the story of a young man that God calls to go plant a church. But as you listen to these stories, the whole point of this is, we're all in this together. There's a story God's wanting to write with your life. There's a story God is writing with your life. What's the rest of the story?